Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Searching for the loan that's right for your life or your business? The Bank of Clark County offers personal auto financing, personal loans and business lines of credit, mortgages and business real estate loans, home equity loans, personal and business construction loans, and more. Whether you're looking to upgrade your life or your business, the Bank of Clark County has the loan that fits. Visit your local Bank of Clark County branch or go to bankofclark.bank. Equal housing lender, member FDIC. If you look around, there are so many ways to make a difference. At Capella University, our FlexPath format gives you a different way to earn your degree. Take courses at your speed. Move on whenever you're ready. Education should fit your life. Learn more at capella.edu. I'm Tamara Thomas, Editor-in-Chief of UrbanHealthToday.com, part of the DocWire family of medical news sites. And I want to thank you for tuning in to Urban Health Weekly. Our goal each week is to keep you informed of the latest in health and medical news right from today's headline. It's time to empower yourself with open conversations about your medical care with news that matters to you. So are you ready? Let's get started. Hi, welcome to Urban Health Weekly. I'm here today with Lewis and Jackie. Hello. Hello. (laughs) All right, well, let's get started. So you heard that they approved Merck's murky... COVID-19 pill. Murky. Yes. Yeah, we had a discussion about that, Lou and I. I, I anyway, so basically. <laughs> I like that, the murky, the murky pill. The murky pill. Murky, murky. Yeah, they, so it was approved by the FDA, which mm-hmm. I was kind of shocked by. You feel I, like it was I, rushed? I don't feel like it was rushed so much as I feel like it's not really all that safe. Okay. I mean... I get the science behind it. I mean, it's an experimental antiviral pill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they say it's 30% effective, that it, um, it cuts the risk of death and hospitalization by 30%. Uh, okay. And the way it works, and this is the part that's concerning for me, is um, it basically bombards the virus with genetic mutations so that um, it renders it ineffective and it can't replicate. Well, that's interesting. Right, because now they're saying that, uh, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago where, okay. where um, the scientist was kind of, you know, sounding the alarm like this isn't safe because this doesn't distinguish between wh- whose genes are gonna get mutated. And so, right. And so that's the genotoxicity, you know, part. So now they have approved it with the proviso that it may pose pregnancy risk. There's two things to look at here. uh, As far as me, and I'm a numbers guy. The first thing is Merck got lucky on this one because they were the first ones to market with this. If the Pfizer drug had been approved, which it's not yet, then I think this would have had a tougher time passing through the FDA. And by oh, the way, you feel like maybe they're giving Merck a bone just to even 
No, I don't think that's what it is. I think it's more like there's still a large, you know, segment of the population that uh, is unvaccinated and will probably remain unvaccinated. So we have to have more therapeutics on the market. But by the way, I just wanted to interject into his point and say that the the science behind the Pfizer pill, it's an anti, it's the same stuff they use in the, um, no, in the HIV Mm -hmm. medication. It's a protease inhibitor. That's what the- Okay. Protease inhibitor, I don't understand why that wouldn't get approved right away because that that science is already sound and it's already working and saving lots of, of mm-hmm. lives in the HIV community. Right. When when we did the uh when we did the vaccine development uh, 2 years ago, some of the FDA protocol and processes were kind of put aside. But now, you know, the, that long train, for, for good and bad, there's good and bad reasons for it. That long train is back in, in process. So Merck got on the front uh, car, and, and unfortunately, Pfizer got on the caboose there. So they're, <laughs> they're, they're trailing, they're trailing the, uh, the Merck product. There's clearly a better product, we think, coming, but it hasn't been fully evaluated yet. So let, let's give it the benefit of the doubt. So number one, Mark got the benefit of having nothing there. So you're you're basically having to prove you're better than nothing. When uh. Pfizer comes, you have to prove that you are equally as good as what's on the market right now or better than okay. in order to get approved. So okay. that, that threshold is a lot lower for any time you have a drug that's first first thing. When you're first up. You yeah, you're first up. Benefit. So Mark got that benefit of the doubt. The second benefit of the doubt that it gets is they're not going to be giving it out to anybody. They're only going to be giving it out to people who are on that path that they evaluate that this person doesn't have, has all the comorbidities, doesn't have a good chance of surviving. Let's give it to them because their chances are less than 30% that they're going to live. So let's give it to you anyway and see what happens here. So I get it, uh, but this is not going to be a widely distributed product. God, I hope not, because but the, some of the- well, potential- You're saying it's a little bit of a Hail Mary, like just in case, like it has that vibe about it, like that's like last not, ditch. Not to me. I think it okay. was just, they just were first to market and, okay. you know, and our, our appetite for, um, for, for treatments, for therapeutics um, is very strong. Yes. But some of the potential risks they identified in animal studies- um, this is according to um, the FDA scientist uh, analyses um, are possible embryo fetal toxicity and birth. Mm. Oh, wow. So I'm just saying, you know, is this really something that that you you want to mess with vis-a-vis a vaccine? Or let's say you just feel very strongly or you have a religious objection, but you've you've come down with a serious case of, of COVID. I mean, I. I don't know. I'd rather not take this, but I'm not a doctor and I'm not a scientist. So I, but that, that gives me strong pause. Pause. Hey, listen, you know, that, that drug that the, the vitamin A based drug that people were using, uh, was it Retin-A for acne? Oh, Retin-A. I used that years ago. ago. They had big stuff on that box. Right. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, risk for embryo fetal toxicity. Yes. It was very nasty. You couldn't tell, you couldn't tell acne sufferers a thing about that. We were all over it. We were like, yeah, yeah. Right. My face. Yeah. So, (laughs) so, (laughs) 
what's to say it's not the same reaction, you know? So anyway, I, you, that, that's where I stand on the drug. And I'm sure people, you know, are going to decide. I, I hope people wait for the other drug. I just think this, this drug sounds, but again, I'm not in a hospital situation. And also the other problem is with the monoclonal antibodies, which is actually safer for like, say, immunocompromised people who, for whatever, right. you just can't fight the, the disease. That, that still hold up. You know, it's not being used as a prophylactic, which it could and should be. Um, it's only right now um, after the fact. I think that's a huge mistake on the FDA's part to leapfrog over uh, anti, you know, uh, monoclonal antibodies and approve this. I'm going to get off my soapbox and, and, and we're going to move on. Okay. If anyone has any final thoughts on this? Wasn't there some blurb about whether or not monoclonal antibodies work for the Omicron? Was that a new, a latest thing? Well, okay. Well, Omicron is a whole other kettle of fish. And that's okay. a very new um, variant that just came out. So really, with the exception of, I think, Pfizer, no one was really prepared for that. Okay. So to hold it to that, that standard. It's too higher standard. I think okay. that's, yeah, I think that's a bit disingenuous. Okay. Uh, if that's what the FDA is, is saying it, have you heard that? Are you, heard, are you hearing they're saying that? No, that's not what I heard. I just heard someone like, come in and said it, it might or it might not. They don't know yet. I, I, they're, they're not going to know for another two weeks uh, okay. how effective any of our um, treatments or our vaccines are on Omicron. We, you know, we're hoping for the best. Just Omicron. 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 I've been saying Omicron. Oi. I know. I've been, <laughs> Greek letter, Omicron. I don't know. Omicron. Or it might be Omicron, but in any event. We've got to get somebody Greek in here to pronounce it. <laughs> but anyway, they don't know one way or another uh, the effectiveness of, of every therapy that we have now. And just because one therapy is going to be less effective doesn't mean the other therapy is going to be less effective. So the answer right. is we're going to wait and see. Um, there is a lot of uh, bio... Uh, work biology work being done on that it's being done by private industry um i think a bio one of the companies biogen or something is uh, is doing all that uh-huh. uh, right now and they're going to uh, provide everybody with the information as far as uh, i think everybody's doing yeah. that right now yeah. moderna's currently in the lab looking at it right pfizer's looking at it but they're not terribly worried because they said they plan for this eventuality mm. so everyone is kind of in that same boat right now so i don't know that that would be a reason not to approve it because omicron is not the only variant that people need to be worried about out there particularly if you're immunosuppressed right okay and omicron seems to have variants of zone from what i read Oh, yeah, that's what. Well, I'm glad you you brought that up, because uh, what we know so far about uh, the Omicron variant and scientists are concerned about is that it has a very high number of mutations, many of them in genes that code for the spike protein, um, which is what, as you know, the, the virus uses to latch on to and invade human cells. Early evidence suggests that people who previously recovered from COVID-19 may have a higher risk of reinfection with Omicron compared to Ooh. prior variants. That's from a statement um, from the WHO, the World okay. Health Organization. That's scary. But so far, no one has been terribly afflicted by it. So I was, you know, I was talking to, to Lou about this um, recently. I was sharing an article with him. 
And, you know, he was just kind of like, oh, okay, well, that's not so bad. And I'm like, well, but it hasn't mm-hmm. reached our shores yet. These mm-hmm. are healthy populations. These are younger populations yeah. that yeah. have been affected yeah. by it. We have to see what happens when it comes here right. with our, mm-hmm. our current, you know, standard American diet and obesity oh. and comorbidities. Yeah. We have to see what Omicron does here. Right. We can't go by mm-hmm. the information for those populations. Right. So, so in Africa, to, get, to put it in perspective, South Africa. Well, in Africa, <laughs> the African continent as a whole, because it's affecting six or seven countries uh, in the South of Africa. But South Africa, the country of South Africa, is the one who reported it, uh, along with Botswana, I believe. But if you look at Africa as a whole, only five percent of the population is over the age of 60. So it's a much, much younger continent than, than either Europe or the United States, oh, where about yeah. a third of our population is 60 and over. The other thing that we have to look at uh, in terms of that is the obesity rates. In the yeah. United States, our obesity yeah. rate is 40%. Yeah. So if you're looking at an obesity rate of 40% and you're looking at an age factor um, that is that is another thirty older skews older okay yep you, you're looking at and uh, don't forget uh, the comorbidities yes, which you have yeah, as soon yeah. as you have obesity you're going to yeah. get into diabetes you've got, that, you've got that trifecta that we have that yeah. other countries just don't have right right so, so we're not out of the woods yet yeah I, I don't even think we're in the woods yet yeah. <laughs> Well, so, they're saying it's already been in Europe. I mean, before yeah. it was in South Africa, it's been there. It's not new in Europe is the argument that- yeah, um, This is like the flu. It, it gets the name of where it's discovered. Yeah. Is, uh, with, yeah. You know, like the Spanish flu wasn't, didn't originate in Spain. We don't even right. know where these things originate, but it was discovered in Spain. And, and the same thing with the, this variant, it was just discovered in South Africa. Well, they reported it. Well, they reported it. Yeah, they're yeah. not too happy about that. They feel like it was like unfairly labeled. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. And yeah. rightfully yeah. so. Yes. Yes. And and we already saw It's them. almost like yeah. the first one who smelt it, dealt it kind of. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? I didn't oh, God, that is an everyday kid reference right there. <laughs> Let's not but, discover but that, it. But I mean, that's what, right. Confused. But that's, but that's how the world is reacting. Like, well, yes. you, well, yes. you know, well, you guys found it. So it must be coming from you. No, 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 yeah. no, no, not, <clears throat> not necessarily. You know. and, and we also how effective travel bans were from COVID um, because you never know where it's coming from. You, you basically have to cut yourself off from the world and countries like Australia and New Zealand that, that, that still got somehow, some way got it in there. So, um, and I just want to remind did it show up in Australia and New Zealand. Oh, yes, it did. Yes, yes. Wait, Omicron? Omicron, yes, it is. Oh, I missed that. I didn't see that one coming. Wow, girl, yes. And I just want to remind people that you know, people were you know, calling labeling this the Chinese virus and all this other stuff, but it reached our shores not through Chinese people or people from China, it reached our shores through Europeans when they did the, right. the, the genome test. Mm-hmm. So let's stop assuming that if we lock a country out, that we're going to keep the disease out. This is this is foolhardy, mm-hmm. you know? Are they taking the position that it's just going to slow things until we know more, or it's knee-jerk? 
I think it's knee jerk at this point. Okay. I think I think what's happening is people, are, you know, like okay, we've got to keep this out of our country. So I think he's. I think Biden is just trying to buy time, really, until he okay. his next move until the until, until the uh, world knows more about the the mm-hmm. virus. But I feel like if you've got your if you've been if you if you've been vaccinated, you've got your booster. I don't think you have a whole hell of a lot to worry about. Like here in New York, we're in kind of a because we're such a, you know, our airports are international airports and stuff like that. And a lot of people have to touch our shores first. We end up being ground zero for a lot of this stuff. So they've inst- instituted a um, mask mandate citywide. So you mu- even if you're vaccinated, you must wear a mask wherever you go. When does this start? Did it start uh, I think this started, I think this started this week. Are you seeing people wearing their masks around the city? Well, people wearing their masks regardless. Wow. Okay, that's good that because I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it like people are walking around with without masks on, and occasionally. Yeah, but, but that, but that depends streets. on where you live. Yeah. yeah. I, I was in Southern Jersey yesterday, and and they, oh, Southern Jersey yeah. is a very different way of thinking. <laughs> yeah, forget about it. You know, I was yeah. in Cherry Hill, and yeah. uh, you know, if you could find a mask. Wow. Uh, I think the people that were wearing masks were forced to wear masks. But I have been in a big box store and I didn't see a single mask except yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, she is. That's pretty outrageous. Yeah. yeah, I'm wearing masks everywhere. And when people give me a little look, I just go, I'm a nervous person. Like I just put it on me, but I'm wearing a mask. Uh, if it's local and somebody's giving me a look, uh, yeah. But indoors, it's it's the opposite here. Like if you if you're not wearing your mask, people stare at you. <laughs> but but yeah. indoors, people have been very good about wearing their masks. Yeah. Uh, outdoors, not so much. But I mean, it's outdoors, so it's I guess it's not as bad. I mm-hmm. want to say I'm not sure. You know, mm-hmm. I'll let you know if I catch uh, if I catch COVID. Uh, <laughs> but I, I've got my booster, and. Uh, hey. And Pfizer's position is if you've got the booster, you are spared the ravages uh, of um, Omicron. Or so the, the big ravages. You might still get well, we don't know what we don't know what the what what it's going to look like when we get to our shores, you know. Yeah. Um, but I would I they're saying that if you're vaccinated, you don't really have a whole lot to worry about. All right. Uh, Moderna's is sort of taking a, a much more cautious approach and they're saying, well, you know, we think you should be fine, but we won't know yet. Um, and I don't know what the others are saying because they haven't been interviewed. I schedule my booster for next week. So I'm going. Hooray! Yay. Patients who experience discrimination may be less likely to take HIV meds. Mm. Uh. So... People living with HIV who experienced discrimination at clinics at clinic visits were two times less likely to take their antiretroviral medications as directed. That's according to data published in AIDS and Behavior Journal. Other types of stigma and concerns about unwanted disclosure of HIV status also played a role. Researchers found that HIV clinics were generally perceived to be non-judgmental spaces. Surveys show that people living with HIV and their providers rated HIV stigma in the clinic as happening nearly never. The medical stigma came when people went outside the HIV clinic for care, to dentists, or even to the emergency room. One person described being taken to the ER for a blood infection and the doctor insisting on finding out how they acquired HIV before treating them. 
wow, that's pretty. Wow. How's that relevant? Yeah, exactly. There was also a lot of everyday discrimination. While many people reported no discrimination, nearly half reported experiencing six types of discrimination. Most common was racism, followed by queer phobia, sexism, discrimination based on income and discrimination related to substance abuse. While researchers couldn't say for sure the difficulty remembering to take HIV medications was the direct result of experiencing discrimination, they certainly were associated. Most significantly, experiences of racism at the clinic are associated with a twofold decrease in the odds of taking antiretrovirals as directed. In addition, people who experience any kind of stigma in a healthcare setting were 38% less likely to take their meds as directed and people who worried about HIV status disclosure adhere to treatment 29% less often. Wow. Thoughts on this? It, it sounds like training and education are needed outside of the HIV clinic. Yeah, like, yeah. I, you know, I'm glad that you brought this up because uh, do you ever see that when you're like online and you see maybe, I, I don't know, a banner that comes up? But sometimes like when I'm on Facebook, I'll have something that pops up that says, um, uh, it, it's a little blurb about hepatitis C specifically. And it'll say, you know, it'll give it like a little example of, a lady who's sitting there and she's saying, I wish I didn't have to answer this person's questions about how I got hep C. And, um, and it like addresses that sort of stigma that, you know, people answering questions um, and feeling obligated to like somehow excuse or explain how they got it. Like it's a blame, it's blaming. And, um, and as if that's relevant. And, and it really does remind me, like I remember once being at a a party and there was a, a young man who had just been out um, from rehab and um, me and this other young mom were talking and um, and she asked him, and I hate to say it, I was thinking, she asked him, hey, did you think that like maybe you might have, you know, hepatitis B or hepatitis C? And I remember knowing that I wouldn't want to ask it, but I did think it, like I did tap into all my germophobia and and I just feel like, you know, that was really insensitive um, and not helpful. Like, how is any of that relevant? And, and it's really important this comes up so we can discuss like mm-hmm. how we can best support our fellow, you know, our fellow people, our fellow human beings. Right. And, um, and that this stigma, like we're just carrying that stuff around. And I definitely, I'm like, I'm always worried about things like contact surfaces and it's my personal germophobia, but right. like, it's not helpful. So but I'm glad everybody. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm really glad as well. But just imagine you're a patient and you hear nurses outside the door arguing yeah, who's going to take care of this patient. I'm not going to go in because he's not on his medication. He's not on his antiretrovirals. I'm not going to take care of him. Uh, you know, it's it's got to be shredding. Well, yeah, I think a this was a valid question in 1985 when there was no cure. Ah, so yeah. Contact tracing and all of that. Even though we've all seen. How, uh, how valuable contact tracing is, because it's not at all uh, valuable. And, you know, you, most people don't even, a lot of people don't even know who gave it to them. This right, is an infectious how they got disease. it, exactly. You, you know. Because uh, if um, you're in, engaging in risky behavior, you're just in, engaging, you're not keeping tabs mm-hmm. of your risky behavior. But something like Cap C, you, you, you might've got it 20 years ago. Oh even. yeah, absolutely. Forever. I mean, yeah. you could have got it. You could have got it getting a tattoo. I mean, right. who knows how you got it? Yeah, yeah. you know. Right. So, so that's very anecdotal and very inexact science. 
so first of all, I, I kind of want to throw that out. Number two, there are cures for this for this right now. So doing all this for content, HIV. Well, there's no cures for HIV. There's yeah, well, treatments there's, there's that will treatments. extend your life and well, make your life treatments normal. That make the viral load either. It looks like there's some pretty good stuff for Hep C these days too. Yeah, from yeah, what I'm saying, yeah. yeah. That yeah. well, now that that hep can be cured. Yes. A, oh, were you talking about the Hep C? Well, I'm cure? talking about yes, both that's true. Hep C and HIV. Well, HIV okay. there's no cure for HIV. There is a cure for for Hep C. Yeah, HIV has uh, drugs now that almost make it imperceptible. And yeah. you, you should be asymptomatic for the rest of your life. If we you follow the regimen. Right, we haven't had a lot of people following the regimen. Now, what is, to me, a valid question is, are you, if the person reveals that they are HIV positive or it comes out on the test, are you on your regimen of medication? I think that's a question because that'll tell you what the viral load is. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, if they've done the blood tests, already they will know what the viral load is. So, so some of those are asking questions where you already know the answer. That said, if you're just coming up to a, a healthcare provider, that healthcare provider might have to do something with your fluids. I think it is a valid question or a valid statement to warn that healthcare provider that you are HIV positive so that they can take extra precautions, maybe an extra set of gloves. Well, but it's called universal precautions. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah, that's right. Universal precautions yeah, would cover that. Everyone across the board, not like, oh, this patient's HIV right. so wear three gloves instead of two. Like it's supposed to be universal for everybody yeah. so that right. you, because you don't know who you're going to encounter, right. not, I have to take more precautions mm -hmm. with you, or I'm you're not right. going to wear gloves with you because you look safe. That's not what universal precaution is supposed to be. But I, I think that um, the whole idea of not taking your medication because you feel stigmatized, I don't know. I have a hard time. I, I understand what that is. That's um, that's emotional regulation. They just took an emotional hit and they suddenly had a, a knock on their motivation. It's like an instant, you know, it's it feels like a sort of instant rejection. And, and I wonder then if there should be built into to HIV counseling, if there should be um, sort of a, a sponsor, sort of kind of like, a, you know, um, AA, where you have a person who's kind of responsible, have a sponsor, or if there's some sort of um, counselor that you have to you you have to report to, who checks in on your feelings, make sure you're doing okay, make sure you're staying on your regimen, you know, sort of a a, a life counselor. I wonder if they should be. Well, it looks like they were saying in the article that it's really that these um, the clinics, the HIV clinics, seems to yeah. have you know oh, they yeah. seem to be and well prepared. Sense. Right. And it's all the people who are like, you know, the other specialists who are not experienced in HIV that are insensitive and, and, uh, you know. Right. But the problem is also that if you're an HIV person and you don't want people to know that you have, ah. HIV, you're probably not going to go to an HIV clinic because immediately that outs you. Right. So you take your chances yeah. going in and person. out. That's what you were saying in that article. Yeah. Going in and out of the clinic is enough you know. Right. And so if you go to a provider who's not specialized in dealing with the sensitive nature of HIV, you're going to run the risk of having a negative experience. Mm -hmm. So immediately you're already primed, I think, to hide your status. Yeah. And then these knocks, as you describe them, I guess, make it worse. I mean, I don't know. That's why I'm wondering if there should be some sort of counseling if immediately upon, 
Uh, it's kind of like, you know, when you're pregnant and they find out that you're pregnant and they do the blood glucose and you. Oh, yeah. They immediately send you to. They immediately uh, send you to the dietitian, right? Yes. Once you're at, once your status is, is, is uh, confirmed, why are people not set up with some sort of counseling? Like, okay, we think that you should have, you know, a crisis counselor or something like that. Someone to bring you back and help you understand, like, look, this is not the end. We've got all these great medications. You just need to take them, you know, one pill a day, two pills a day, whatever, and move on with your life. Someone that you can telehealth, phone in. I'm just wondering if that would make adherence to the, the, the program better. I'm just, I'm just wondering. That sounds like uh, that might be what's going on at these clinics. I really just, no, I mean, I'm just wondering, I don't know, <laughs> I know you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not a clinician and I don't really have experience in my personal life um, with people who have HIV. Um, so I, I don't know what, what it all entails. Um, do they have counseling and they're just not getting it? Or is, if they're not getting it, is it something that they should get to keep them on track so that they don't get, you know, you're, if you're, don't feel isolated? And they if don't. you work in the hospital, there's, you know, you'll be, it might be in your case, it might be in your record that you're HIV positive. I mean, that might be just a matter of course before you have a procedure. But I would think like usually once you're in the hospital, that's not so much of a, a a big deal to the people who work in the hospital. I guess it's all these periphery people, like the the people outside the well, this one did say that article that it was like in the ER that yeah. the doctor gave him. Yeah, that the, the doctor wanted and, to and know as, as if somehow the HIV is different from a gay person. Uh, that's just flat out judging. transfusion. I mean, <laughs> what difference does it make? Righteous, <laughs> you're a righteous sick man. But look, yeah. at the end of the day, you know, whether it's HIV or it's prostate cancer or it's breast yeah. cancer, uh, a lot of these diseases give you a lot of trauma. And uh, sometimes people don't get uh, tested or treated for these diseases uh, because of the trauma or some implied, you know, I'm ashamed or whatever the nonsense is. Oh, and, that's not and, nonsense to be traumatized. No, no but the nonsense is on the other side, on the... Uh, on the, on the, clinical, on the, on the clinical side, dishing it out. Yeah, they they should understand that this person's gone through a traumatic experience. And you are right, Jackie. We we should have more on the counseling side. Unfortunately, we we don't do that as a route in healthcare. Hi, how can I help you today? As a McDonald's employee, you say those words quite often. But how about when you need help, like consulting a doctor? Hi, how can I help you today? When you work for a McDonald's restaurant, we take care of you like family. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. With free virtual doctor's visits, including getting prescriptions and refills for you and everyone in your family. Apply today at careers.mcdonalds.com and find out more. The benefits described herein are only available at participating restaurants which is post-counseling, making sure you're compliant with your meds and all that. There's just not a lot of follow-up. I think that that should be, I think that should be a requirement uh, across states and across medical systems and health centers and clinics that a a person with HIV immediately be uh, put in contact with. uh, I like how you called it almost like a sponsor, like they do in AA. Yeah, exactly. Like kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, a sponsor. All right, we got to take a break and we'll be right back. Frenchman to Oak Street, Treme, Gentilly, and the CBD. V102.3, WHIV FM, the vibe of the city for human rights and social justice. WHIV, 102.3 FM. And we're back. So this week's topic we're getting into is racial disparities in cancer clinical trials. According to ASCO, cancer-related mortality has been found to be disproportionately higher in racial minorities and medically underserved populations. This necessitates adequate representation of these subgroups in clinical trials for these practices to become an acceptable benchmark for all. However, this has been historically challenging and various studies have failed to show equitable representation of various ethnic groups in these trials that ultimately guide clinical practice. Black and Hispanic patients were more likely to participate in breast cancer clinical trials, but were significantly underrepresented in colorectal, lung, and prostate cancer trials. Additionally, patients over 65 were underrepresented in breast, colorectal, and lung cancer trials, while women were underrepresented in colorectal and lung cancer trials. Women were less likely to be included in colorectal cancer trials in recent years. However, women were more likely to participate in lung cancer trials. Trends in inclusion for patients older than 65 years varied depending on the cancer type. My initial thoughts on this, and I wanted to get you guys' thoughts on this, is so, well, well, three things. So the first thing is, um, I said to myself, I said, this is this, the reason that, that this persists is because they keep saying like every one of these, these studies says that more needs to be done, something needs to be done, but nobody's putting forward any solutions. You know, it's this, this head scratching. It's like, well, we've got this data, but let's scratch our heads and figure out what we're going to do. And no one's, I think it's a, one for one, it's status quo. So, for example, you know seatbelts in this country and probably around the world, I don't know, but seatbelts in vehicles are designed based on male anatomy. They have never been designed for women. They have never been designed for children. The template is always male body. And so I think that this is kind of the same thing with these clinical trials, why they continue to see these, the same trends, the same trends over and over. The other thing is, I think there's a huge knowledge gap among providers. I think that um, wealthier, more connected providers 
have more information than lower income providers in smaller clinicals and hospital systems. Uh, I also think that medical schools are still not graduating enough physicians of color. And I think that if they were, uh, this would uh, significantly ease that disparity. Wow. Well, it does look like with people of color from that article, it looks like women were more likely to get participate in the trials, it, but they just weren't being included in some of the trials. Is that correct? Right. So they were underrepresented in collective, but they were, uh, they well, were still they underrepresented in breast too. In general, I think women are underrepresented, but um, where I think what they're saying is where women should be represented, they're not represented. Like the, the, the how do you get into a trial? How do you get into it? Yeah, let me let me take that. Yes, please. Uh, one way where you get into a trial is your doctor. Your doctor, it's themselves are participating in the trial. So many times when the trial starts, the recruitment for the trial is not doesn't start with the patient. It starts with the physician. So okay. physicians volunteer for these trials. Now. In, in reality, a lot of the physicians that are volunteering for the trial may be working at university hospitals, mm-hmm. uh, maybe bigger, working at, bigger at systems, bigger mm-hmm. systems, places that do research, better funded system. Yep. So right. your community MDs, which see a lot of the minority patients, may not. And lower income. And, and lower income. Right. Patients. They don't have those connections, per se. Correct. Exactly. So. First off, those physicians that opt to be in the trial and select people for the trial are already in the higher echelon of those facilities. So people that don't have optimal insurance don't qualify for that, for that place. So, so there's that. So that. probably directly related. That insurance is a, is a factor in getting into clinical trials. I had no idea. Well, it's not that the insurance covers it or doesn't. They're cover getting it. that hospital. They're having that doctor and that right. treatment. If it's Mount Sinai that is the only one who's doing the trial, and your insurance, the Mount doesn't, Sinai doesn't take. It's not you, part of your network. Right. It's not part of your network because it's part of the higher price network usually, because it's usually the upper tier and upper echelon places. If you're not part of that upper echelon health system your doctor is, may not be doing the trial, may not even know about the trial. May not be the cutting edge person that's connected with all Right, that and that's right. the knowledge gap among providers we're talking mm-hmm. about, yeah. Right, so, mm-hmm. so it starts, it starts re- recruitment over there. Secondly, a lot of trials, they do, they do advertising, but we don't do a good job in advertising. To be honest with you, you know, those are the type of ads I see at three o'clock in the morning that are... <laughs> You know, you you get some of those uh, commercials, but they're not usually during prime time, and they don't really make an effort at at being inclusive or 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 reaching out or saying, okay, let's let's get this done. Um, so that that advertising for the uh, patient is not done that much. Um, and then your third prong is, you know, I'm I'm desperate. Um, it, it's not, um, yeah, you know the the cancer has advanced. Uh, the doctor knows full well that what's available now is not good. They may have read something in a medical journal about a trial, so they will suggest you for the trial. Uh, again, you rely on your provider to be aware of what's going on, and they, that awareness does not always exist. The, the outreach now, you know, the, a lot of companies are. Yeah, there's a company called, I think, All of Us or something mm-hmm. like that, that... Um, 
they're trying to be an aggregate um, to have people on hand yeah. so that um, when clinical trials do um, pop up mm -hmm. that uh, fit your demographics, yeah. that they inclusive uh, demographic profile for the studies. But the uptake on that, I'm not really yeah. sure. Let me tell you, five years ago, you didn't hear peep about this. Yeah. You, you really didn't. So this is something that's only come up over the last three to five years. Secondly. But that's not to say it hasn't been a problem. It's always been a problem. Don't forget. Don't what happened with the HIV, the gay men's health crisis. They were instrumental. They moved it forward. That's right. They were mm -hmm. instrumental in getting, um, you know, people into these trials and stuff like that. And even among that group, they were still excluding a lot of uh, black and brown um HIV sufferers from these mm -hmm. clinical trials. So this is a problem that's mm -hmm. perpetuated decade after decade after decade. Right. So, so now we're, we're at the stage where we say, hey, we want to be more inclusive. However, the trials are happening in areas that are not as inclusive as we'd like it to be, which are economically, they're not racially uh, uh, segregated, but they're economically segregated. So where the clinical trials are happening, it's, it's really, the access is only really to the upper echelon payers. Uh, mm -hmm. second, that's, that comes down to the doctors then. Yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. But I, I've got this saying that, you know, people watch out after their own. And when you only have, if you take African-Americans, for example, only 7% of doctors are African-American. And, uh, you know, three, and, but 30% of our, our patients. So whether it's the doctors not not really having that as the, the forefront of their uh, their you know their interest or which i believe you know let's give the doctors a pass right here it could also be the patients uh, you, you know the patient if your doctor doesn't look like you sometimes you don't trust maybe them. you want to be comfortable with and that. a lot of it and a lot of it is is a is well the, so part of it is the echo chamber that's created because of of lack of access as you were pointing out mm -hmm. but another part of it as you're saying is it's because the the what did you just say the well, in terms of the mistrust of somebody that's not, right. that doesn't look like you. I mean, right, that's, exactly. That's, that's the other thing. And, and that's what we're seeing a lot of that now. It's like, well, well I don't want to be, I don't want to be in this trial. So even if you do have access to it, what's to say that people are not turning it down? Although I don't really think that's probably the strongest. I think it's more a lack of access and lack of knowledge among providers. The information is just not making its way down. If top-notch doctors who are more likely to be, uh, you know, on the cutting edge, who are more likely to have it, you know, be connected to these trials so that they can suggest these trials for their patients, aren't they more likely to be the doctor that has, you know, that takes the premium insurance, don't they have right. to volunteer to take a certain amount of people with lousier insurance? Right, I mean, exactly. And that's, that's the, that's the lack of access is that right. you're not going to take, because they're not going to do that runaround. They, they, they've already established. Yeah, they're not the ones that they they say, I already did my time when I was in medical school and now I'm, you know, I just want to concentrate. I have a residency and I, and, and I want to focus on knocking down these, these student loans or I want to focus right. on getting my bulk house or whatever their goals are, you right. know, and, and that's completely their right. But that's what ends up happening. It's like, I don't want to deal with this, this low um, paying insurance that's right. going to pay me pennies on the dollar for my time and my work. Um, and then what happens is, I will say that the, 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 that doesn't excuse or, or, or change the fact that there is a knowledge gap. Just because you don't deal with X amount of patients 
like in law, they, they have pro bono, right? Like you have to do a certain right. amount of pro bono every year to keep your license up. I don't know that doctors necessarily have the same. I don't think oh, beyond I, a certain point, they might do it for, you know, goodwill, but it but, sort of has to be imposed on them, especially if they're getting all this funding. If they're, you know, if they're connected but, to the trial, can we pressure? But as far as sharing the knowledge so that, so that more providers are aware of these things, that's what I, that's what I think the huge bottleneck is. So I think mm. it's a two pronged thing. I think it's this knowledge gap that that strongly needs to be addressed. And I think also it's the medical school still not uh, putting out, they're still not graduating enough physicians of color. That makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, the, and, but here's the other problem that, uh, that's their graduate, the, the, the doctors of color and providers of color that they are graduating, a lot of times they're going into the higher echelon stuff because they're saddled with tons of medical school bills. Uh, they can't go into, they, they can't be a primary They need to look out for their immediate needs. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so you, you have the perpetuation it, it, and it just self-perpetuates where it's like, well, look, I can't afford to be a primary care doctor because I can't afford, I've got to pay my medical bills. My medical bills are hefty. So I can't go and, and work for $90,000 at this clinic where I can probably be more effective and help more people Mm-hmm. I've got to go and work for this big hospital system and make 150, 200,000, you know, plus my bonus. I mean, that's just the reality of yes. it. So really the only thing we can immediately do, I think, is that knowledge needs to be shared. This information should not be hoarded at the top, so to speak. There needs to be some sort of feeder system so that all providers all oncologists get access to this information so they don't have to go ferreting around for it and maybe finding it and maybe not finding it. This needs to be readily available information. Well, I, I, I've kind of got a... Oh, I'd like to hear it. Oh, this... That sounded pretty logical to me. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I, I think that is a solution. However, mm-hmm. you know, I'm looking at effectiveness and having complete distrust of human beings and the human nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, my solution would be to kick the problem upstairs and kick the problem to the money. And by kicking the problem to the money, it's like make it the drug company's problem. And most of the pre-acceptance of a product is, doing, is done right after drug discovery. You know, right after drug discovery, you then do the cellular stuff, then you do the, the animals, then you go to human. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about human trials. So once a drug, and I think that's that's called like stage three. Or oh stage. yeah, they have different stages of the trials. Right. Okay. So once you get into the human, the human aspect of it, my solution is that the FDA gives it a mandate that you have a proportionate number within X amount percent of how many people uh, have taken this. So for example, if our population here in the United States is 13%, African-American, 13% of the people in that trial within, you know, plus or minus 2% should be African-American. 20% should be Hispanic. 10% should be Asian. 5% Southeast Asian. And and the rest is white. Just like you're supposed to do 50-50 men and women, do 50-50, you know. But you you have to have something that's indicative of the U.S. population. If you kick it up to the FDA level. Right. And the FDA level approves drugs based on this and says, mm-hmm. hey, your drug works great, but what about these races? You didn't test the day. Go back and test those. Right. 
Drug companies are going to make damn sure they test those in advance because the last thing they want is a delay on that. And for nothing. Yeah. Right. Now, where where the government does, uh, you know, there's also, um, when it comes to rare diseases, and it comes, uh, they call them orphan drugs or orphan diseases. These are diseases where it has very few people. Yes. You get some government sponsorship. But for the most part, it's, 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 it's pharma. Well, according to a new study published in JAMA Network Open, precision medicine clinical trials aren't using a representative group of patients, which is what we were just talking about. The study looked at demographic data for nearly 6,000 enrollees of 93 precision oncology clinical trials. First of all, I had no idea that there were even that many precision medicine uh, clinical trials. Researchers honed in on breast, prostate, lung, and colorectal cancer studies in the database and found a disproportionate number of participants of white and Asian ancestry in all those studies, while Black and Hispanic patients were understudied. The number of white participants was 35% higher than the expected proportion of patients, and the number of Asian American participants was 46% higher across the board. 24 fewer Hispanic and 49% fewer Black patients participated in the trials than would be representative. The disparities were even higher when it came to different cancers. Black patients were underrepresented by 69% for lung cancer, and Asian American patients were overrepresented by 196%. Oof. That's bananas. Tells you where the money is, but <laughs> it does. It, yes, that, that's true. I, can I just say though, like, <laughs> I know that this was this factual data, but you know, I'm, I always get a little uncomfortable when a study lumps Asian people who are people of color, um, technically, um, in with white patients. For me, it just feels, it's like this us or them implication. It just makes me uncomfortable. I know facts are facts, but I've seen on message boards where Asian people get really defensive when they hear this kind of data. It's yes. like, what, so you want us to not participate in these things? Well, you want to exclude us? Like they get extremely defensive. Uh, and I don't believe anyone is that is saying that they shouldn't be represented. So they're not overrepresented. It's people of color are underrepresented. Okay. You know what, we... Well, it's basically it's 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 not considering them people of color. Ah, you, you see what I'm saying? Because they're saying okay. the the article is white and Asian American patients overrepresented. They're not being called people of color. They're just being called Asian as if they're like some preferred status or like non people of color, which they are people of color. Again, facts are facts, but I just don't like the you know like the sentence here where it says uh, okay. you know black patients were underrepresented by sixty percent. And Asian American patients were overrepresented. It's, it just creates this this dichotomy, you well, know, like this us or them. Well, let, let's look at it in a, a little differently. First of all, we lump we Americans tend to lump Asians into a group called Asians. Genetic, right, and that's a huge group of different it, people. <laughs> yeah. On one side, you have the Chinese, you have the Koreans, and the Japanese. On one side, because there are brown they, Asians. Yes. Then on the other side, you have yes. what we now start calling South, South Southeast Asian, Asian. Yes. Yeah. and all that, which are completely different genetic group um, in terms of how things affect, how things mm -hmm. are affected. Mm -hmm. And the same is true in Latin America. So you're saying that when this, this says Asian, they're, they're referring to like, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, is that? Actually, what we don't know, do we? Well, but, but I think that's yeah. part of my point here, where they break yeah. out 
they say they say black and Hispanic patients. And, you know, there are Hispanic people who are black, but they make sure to say black and Hispanic patients. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. Yes. Now I see it. Yes. Law and how this is written is if to imply that somehow Asian people are not people of color. Mm-hmm. Right. They are not okay. white people. Yeah. And, and we're talking about genetics here. We're yeah. not talking about the fact that I was born in Argentina or I was born in Cuba. Or, mm-hmm. Right. Or and I just like find that. it a bit exclusionary that they're, they're being lumped that way. I, I think we have to start, you know, in the future, kind of rearranging our language yeah. and rearranging, you know, I, I get it. We, I, I, I consider myself an American. And at the end of the day, I'll get offended if somebody doesn't consider me an American, blah, 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 blah. But at the same time, there's also my Hispanic background. At the same time, there's a European background behind that. And then there's an Arab background behind that. So, so we have to look at where we originated genetically in order to see how these treatments affect us. Because what we're talking about is how does this treatment affect a person of your genome? And is there a difference? So I was just uncomfortable mm-hmm. with the language used in this as if yeah. as if Asian people somehow are not people of color, which right. it's, it's mm-hmm. not true. And I know on, on my, one of my favorite shows, Insecure, um, Molly, you know, made a, mm-hmm. a point of, of saying to um, she was dating uh, an Asian guy at the time and she went on vacation with the, his family and they went to a resort and the brother was playing devil's advocate because uh, something low key. Um, mm-hmm. happened to her that didn't happen okay. to people, non-colored people. And she brought it up and he was playing devil's advocate. And she said, well, you know, Asian people have the luxury of, of deciding when to be a person of color, which I don't know that I agree with that necessarily, but that was a point that she made that I think some people feel that Asian people of the lighter persuasion, the North, the Northern Asian will say, uh, tend to to switch but I don't know that that's true I think Asian people in general very much own up to their culture they hold on to their language they hold on to their traditions they don't try to be anything other than what they are Mm. but I don't know that that's really fair I think that's something that's put on them by this culture where white people sort of adopt them in and say well you're not brown and you've got upward mobility and you're educated in math and all this other stereotypes so you're accepted we we accept you but you know they get the they get the dirty jokes and the slurs just like we do. They get the they get the the nasty mm-hmm. names and and uh, I mean I'm not going to say any of them, but they they get the insults just like other people of color do. So let's not let's not sleep on that. And I'm not putting aside the facts. You know they are overrepresented, but I just don't like how it's how it's stated here. You know as if well. Black people were underrepresented, but Asian people were overrepresented. overrepresented. I, I, you know, I, and, I, and I, I hate to get lost in the language, but I just think it's really important that we stop, we stop separating ourselves because we all have a story. We're all, we all deal with, you know, imperialism in our own different ways. Yes. You know, people call me a name or two when, when it was at work during meetings. Wow. About 30 years ago, you know. Wow. Yeah. Ago, Hopefully times have changed. More recent than I'd like to. Uh, I don't think that stuff ever goes away. I just don't. And, you know. Well, then, then it must be imposed that it's unacceptable, imposed upon you that it's not acceptable. And then you just don't say it. Like even the writing. Go away. Yeah. But like even the writing of this, this article, they're, they're overrepresented. 
while they are people of color, they're not brown people of color, does that make them less people of color? I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I realize I'm just getting hung up on, on the details here, but sometimes the details are important. But the point, the point Lou made, though, was that it needs to be put on top of the... Yes, I think that's a, an excellent observation. And I think yeah. that it has to be put on the pharmaceutical company that if they're going to get things to pass... So that means it has to be imposed upon them. They're not going to volunteer that goodwill. Right. The FDA has to make it as part of it. That, you know, if you come up with a drug and everybody that it was tested on is a 22 year old white male, then there's definitely. Or a 60 year old white male. Or a 60 year old white male. Or or a 55 year old white woman. Or a 72 year old, uh, you know, Eskimo. It it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter on, on what it is that you do. There has to be a diversity. I don't think they call themselves Eskimos. What are they? Here? I think they call themselves uh, Alaskan natives. Alaskan natives. I'm yes. sorry. I'm just dating myself. <laughs> My apologies. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I got to take a plane ride to Prussia in a little while, right? So, <laughs> to Prussia. So you, were, no so, you were, so you were saying about Alaskan natives. Go ahead. Well, you know, even if you just go in, in one direction, a group that is underrepresented quite a bit uh, genetically. and um, a and, bit. Try they like like a they're lot. completely excluded mm-hmm. from almost everything. But you can't. You have to do a balanced clinical trial. Yeah, and that's the reason why then other countries should then do backup trials after our trials just to make sure that the data holds true for them. Yeah, uh, I remember I did a um, an interview with a she was an um, ophthalmologist, and she was doing a study, and she found out that her black patients were not responding to a drug that had been created for, I think it was macular degeneration. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was a very interesting interview. Right. Yes. The, the, and, and that's because they weren't included in the clinical trials. Had they been included in the initial clinical trials, the drug makers would know that, oh, this formulation does not work on them. But because of going back to my, my, uh, my uh, example about the, the status quo, the seatbelt design, they design. They always they they always design the seatbelt for the male body. They never think about women. They never think about women's breasts. They never think about children's tiny bodies. It's always men, 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 men. As it should be. <laughs> Lord. my face is twisted, y'all. <laughs> Better show up my in the show. I'm going on strike. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> so so. I'm not sure what the solution is to this, but I think that's I think that's a, a very good uh, good point. I just wish there were lobbyists that would bring something like this to the government and say, "Hey, look, mm-hmm. we're the lobby for uh, equity in clinical clinical trials, and we want you to um, to make it so that these drug companies have equitable clinical trials." Yeah. Well, here's a here's a space for the government to take action because this is completely in our government's hands. Yes to do this. And so far, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that they're involved with, obviously, but I, I'd like there to be some focus on this. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think it would be good if the if the scientific community, or even the AMA weighed in on this and said, hey, we like to we like to have some government um, oversight to make sure there's clinical no, trial. Nobody equity. ever roots for government oversight. That's, well, yeah. but, but, but if we're all in the if if they're well, all that's in the back, yeah. of, of if they're all in the business of health, 
and they're all in the business of like trying to move forward with equity. This is a step in the right direction. Right. That and, mm-hmm. and I think graduating more doctors of color, right. and, and which then, starts right. with recruiting, you know, at the high school levels, mm-hmm. the science students, to outreach, the medical, right, exactly, to go into the medical programs and getting more students into the pre-med and getting more students into the medical schools. And yeah. you have to go back you know, into the high school level. That, right. So so these things yeah. are doable. You know, they, they've just got to stop scratching their head and writing papers and saying, well, we don't know what to do, but something right. must be but, done. But let me tell you, if Pfizer, Lily, Mark, and all of the above know that in order to get their drug approved, these trials have to be inclusive. If it affects the bottom line. Is, yes. I bet you a dollar this problem will go away. Yes. Okay. What Safe. was the name of that group that you said that was um, that was trying to get people, that was filtering people? I think they're called All of Us. I have the app okay. on my phone, but I don't have my phone in front of me right now. All right. I think they're called All of Us. I right know. So there are, there are. Oh, there I see it here. Of all of Us. It's yes. part of NIH. Ha. Huh. Yes. Federally funded. Yeah. But there needs to be a bigger push um, okay. to get that information out there. I'm so glad you asked about that and brought that up. But yes, we need more of that, please. <laughs> all right. That's all the time we have today. I love you guys. And love you guys. Uh, see you next week. And it's all good right. to have Jackie. All yeah, right. I'm glad to be back. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Urban Health Weekly today. I hope you'll join me and my friends next week so you can stay informed and inspired to take control of your health. See you next time. Freedom is a feeling, and the best way to truly feel free is behind the wheel of a Jeep SUV. Find out what true freedom feels like at Jeep Freedom Days. And now, financing at $2,500 total cash allowance on the purchase of a 2022 Jeep Grand Cherokee WK Laredo 4x4. Don't miss this great offer. Financing for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital. Not all buyers will qualify. Residency restrictions apply. Must take retail delivery by 531-22. Jeep is a registered trademark. This is Sarah's O'Reilly Auto Parts story. Driving cross-country with two young children is ambitious, to say the least. Then our check engine light came on. We pulled into O'Reilly Auto Parts and they tested it. Turned out it was a faulty sensor. They referred us to a great mechanic just down the street and we were back on the road in no time. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. 